Paul Vanderclay is here to speak to us this morning, to bring God's word to us this morning. Many of you know Paul already because you're with him for a conference over the last couple of days. And he is a friend to our congregation. He's a ordained pastor in the Christian Reformed Church, a leader of a church, Christian Reformed Church in the Sacramento area. He's an active member of our denomination, and I've gotten to know Paul through his work in our classes, and we are so grateful that God has brought you to speak to us this morning. So let Amen. me, would you welcome him with me? Thank you. And before I turn it over to Paul, would you pray with us? Our Father, how grateful we are that we get to hear your word this morning through your servant, Paul. Lord, thank you for his heart to serve you, for his passion, Lord. Thank you for his heart for people and challenging us to learn how to listen and honor and show humility in our relationships with one another. Lord, we live in a culture now where people disagree. We shut them down. We shut them off. How grateful we are for Paul's ministry that, that goes beyond this point to, to open our hearts and to listen and honor one another and to still speak the truth in love. Lord, thank you for this morning. Bless him. Open our hearts and our minds to receive that which you want us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul, Amen. Thank you, Dad. I had no plans of wearing this this morning. And what happened this morning, this is the prayer shawl of a dear friend of mine who is Jewish, if you haven't picked this up. And when in the New Testament it talks about the hem of Jesus' garment, this is likely what it was. My great-great or great-great-great-grandfather in northern Netherlands was a Jew, and he married a Dutch woman. And so he was sort of at some point put out of the synagogue, and my great-great-grandfather sent my great-grandfather on a boat out of Rotterdam uh, to Spring Lake, Michigan, and he settled in and my, brought, my, brought his father and his mother and a disabled brother and a couple of sisters over, married, had children. They joined the Reformed Church of America in Spring Lake, and then when he lost his wife having their sixth child, they moved to Grand Rapids and joined the Oakdale Park Christian Reformed Church. And his son Hiram um, became a Christian Reformed minister. And his son Stan became a Christian Reformed minister. And Stan was my father. And here I am. And here this morning as I'm prepared to give this sermon, my dear friend Jacob comes up and says, you have to wear this. <laughs> this is actually quite fitting for the strange turns that my life has taken over the last few years. Over the last couple of days, by your gracious hospitality, we've had a conference on this stage called The Quest for a Spiritual Home. And here you have a cognitive scientist from the University of Toronto. We have an orthodox icon carver who spends a lot of his time making YouTube videos about symbolism. 
and touring around the world uh, with Jordan Peterson making videos about symbolism in Jerusalem and Rome and he, he makes comic books um, that have Christian themes. We have Catherine who is a psychologist from, from Northern Ontario. We have myself, a Christian Reformed minister, now wearing a Jewish prayer shawl to preach in a Christian Reformed church. And I don't know how to describe John Vendonk. Y'all have known him a lot longer than I have. But he's there too. And I know some of you kind of peeked your head in this weekend and saw what is possibly the most unusual diversity of people you could imagine. So a lot of young men, some of whom have, well, grown up in a lot of different settings, many of them without any church or any credible church, and have, of all things, joined the Orthodox Church. Others have become Roman Catholic. Others have joined evangelical churches. We had a couple of individuals fly in from the UK. Um, this summer, John and I spent three weeks in Europe going all over, starting little groups in the United Kingdom, in Northern Ireland, in the Netherlands, in Germany. And just a tremendous diversity. You'll find, you'll find women in the medical field, you'll find housewives, you'll find doctors, you'll find businessmen. An enormous diversity of people who are asking big, deep questions about is it possible to have a spiritual home in this world? And we did this conference on this stage. This afternoon we're going to tour an Orthodox church to look at how, they've, how the icons on the wall and what the icons mean. And I'm doing all of this in a Jewish prayer shawl. Part of what's happened that most of you know is that there have been vast changes in the church in America. Over the last decade, we've had the rise of the nuns. Now, when I grew up in New Jersey with a lot of Roman Catholics around, nuns taught Catholic school, and I'd hear stories about kids getting wrapped on the knuckles. Uh, not those kind of nuns. The nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who have walked away from religion, established religion, the religion of their youth, and they're wondering. Many, many people say they're spiritual but not religious, and they're trying to figure out what to do, and they take a little from here, and they take a little from there, and they, they try to piece something together. There's a lot of seeking going on in America right now. Now, Part of how this has intersected with this church is, as you may or may not know, you have a little group called Estuary that meets on your facility once a month or so, or maybe twice a month. I don't know how often John is doing it. That grew out of me making videos about Jordan Peterson in 2018 and 2019 and began to talk with Jonathan Peugeot and John Verveke and just exploring 
the world. Cognitive psychologist, someone who's in touch with church fathers and a Protestant minister and gathering more and more people into conversations. We never quite know where the conversations go. It's not a Bible study where here's what we're going to learn. It's, it's bringing people who in many ways are seekers or refugees from the disruption of life in the world saying, I'd like to have a credible conversation with something about what means most. I'd like to be heard and I'd like to speak. Many of the people are, come from broken homes. Many of the people were suffering from depression, basically from sort of the pervasive nihilism that is creeping up in our society. It's renewed interest in all sorts of things. Religion, spirituality, psychology, philosophy. And the whole movement we've just sort of named after a, a, a psychologist who does community work. She, she said on one video, this little corner of the internet, and it's sort of stuck. And so this little corner is where we find ourselves. Now America has long been a place of Christian innovation and experimentation all the way back to the First Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards, that reformed pastor philosopher who, who worked on the frontier of New England. And while he reached out to Native Americans, he, he thought deeply and reflected profoundly about religion and philosophy. There was a Second Great Awakening. The Civil Rights Movement in many ways was, was sort of a, a spiritual enlivening in America, shaking up the churches and asking us, what does it mean to be brothers and sisters across racial lines? And one of the latest tremors recently in the movie Jesus Revolution talked about many of the events in northern and southern California where hippies started coming to church and dared to bring things like guitars and drums and use them for worship and sing new songs. We're heirs of that movement. And I think now with the rise of the nuns, this pervasive seeking, we could quite possibly be living in the midst of another one. The funny thing about these revolutions are when you're in them, you never know. It's only after that you begin to see. Now the first century in the Roman Empire was a time similar to that. Rome had basically done a lot of its expansion. The peace of Rome doesn't mean that they weren't, there weren't little wars. Rome became remarkably adept at putting down revolutions. And what that meant was that that vast Mediterranean Sea in the midst of the Roman Empire was their superhighway. You could get one place to another. Grain would flow from North Africa and Egypt all the way up to and fed the northern parts of the empire. It was a cosmopolitan world. Spoke Latin in the West and Greek in the East. And it was a diversity of practices and religions. And in that, in that melting pot of spirituality, there were a particular people who never quite fit in. They were resistant. There were about 10% of the Roman Empire, and you would find in, in, in the major cities, in, in Antioch, in Alexandria, in Rome, in Corinth, in Philippi, you would find these synagogues. And people who were polytheistic understood about idols and temples and all the ways that you tried to secure the favor of the gods in order to secure success in this world, 
And then there were those Jews wearing things like this, studying the Torah, praying to their strange God. And people wondered. Of course, the book of Acts is the story in many ways of Saul of Tarsus turned around on the road to Damascus. And most of the book of Acts has these stories of Paul going through these cities, going into synagogues, talking about the resurrection, provoking riots, often having his life threatened, synagogues splitting, and in other places just little tiny groups of churches. I didn't know if this was really going to work to wear while I preach, but... Jacob, was this some kind of a setup? (laughs) And the church was born. But before Paul, in chapter 9, is interrupted on the road to Damascus, there was Philip, who was a Hellenistic Jew in Jerusalem. If you remember Acts chapter 6, where we first find the deacons, the Hebraic widows were being fed, and many of the Hellenistic widows, the widows of Jews who had lived in the broader empire but gone down to Jerusalem for their retirement years to die there, awaiting the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, well, they weren't from that country. Their children weren't necessarily there, so seven deacons were named Stephen, of course, was the most preeminent, but also Philip, and they were of this diaspora, and when persecution broke out, they fled the city, and Philip went, preaching, teaching, doing exorcisms, miracles, and proclaiming Jesus to be Israel's Messiah. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of, well, the old versions say Candace, Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. By the way, if you want an education on The church in Ethiopia, you might check out Jonathan Peugeot's channel with Richard Rowland. They have a number of series on the interesting case of Ethiopia. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Now, most of us are not accustomed to the idea of what eunuchs were. A eunuch often was a slave who was taken as a young man and castrated so they wouldn't have divided commitments. They would be completely devoted to their master. They likely wouldn't steal because they wouldn't have any generations after them. This was a common practice in the Roman Empire, and it was done to slaves to basically keep them in bondage because why steal or run away when Your job is your whole life. Some of you might be able to relate to that. Ethiopia was a place on the fringe, on the edge of the world. It was a black kingdom. 
and it was known for its wealth and its riches, the same place that the Queen of Sheba came from to meet Solomon. And, and in that symbolic world, it represented the ends of the world, sort of a mystical, strange place. And here this man comes, obviously invested with tremendous wealth and power, to Jerusalem to worship. There's a long tradition that the Jews had gone to Ethiopia early, but yet you can see if they're still castrating slaves, they certainly weren't following Torah. Now, not unlike people searching YouTube and doing research, this man decided to go to Jerusalem to worship. But if you know anything, he couldn't really worship with the Jewish men in the temple. He was castrated. He was cut off. He was imperfect. The Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I wonder if this man remembered when he was taken and what was done to him and how he had no choice, no voice, no say in the matter. This verse must have given him pause. And then this, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Yes, cut off, never to have a family, never to share in what was perhaps considered normal. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. You see, Roman gods offered power to the already clever, virtuous, and beautiful. Why is a wealthy and powerful castrated slave fascinated by the religion of a people who have in some ways flourished in exile, but in other ways continued to live with the tensions of amazing promise and continued exile and humiliation. At great cost, he travels a great distance from the ends of the world to Jerusalem. And he discovers that in some ways, that cutting that was done to him cut him off from so much more. Earlier, earlier in the chapter, he would have read in Isaiah 56, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple, within my temple, and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an eternal name that will endure forever. This eunuch didn't climb to the top of the hierarchy 
by being passive or dull-witted. He was sharp. He was paying attention. This was a man who when he saw an opportunity, he grabbed it. He would not wait. He would not be shy. He would not be afraid. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Who was cut off and how? Was it himself or someone else? There's a long conversation over this text of the suffering servant. Who is the suffering servant? Is it the prophet? Is it another man? Is it Israel itself? Is it, is it a person or is it in fact an entire religious spiritual body? Then Philip began to began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Someone else who was cut off in his youth, someone else who did not leave a family behind, someone else who would have a memorial better than sons and daughters. One such seeker is Tom Holland who wrote the book Dominion. He was raised in an Anglican church, had a dust-up with his Sunday school teacher about dinosaurs, and sort of walked away with it like a lot of people in the, US, or in, in the UK. And then he, he did a book about the origins of Islam, comparing some of those stories to some of the history that he found as a professional historian. And he began having tours saying, this thing doesn't add up. And someone stood up and said, hey, why don't you pick on your own religion? And he said, well, I don't have one. So then he started digging into Christianity. And he was amazed by what he found. This is what he said on one podcast responding to his book. Imagine you've got to write a story in which, for the first time, someone who suffers the excruciating death of a slave is going to be cast as being, in some way, part of the creator God, who fashioned everything, and he's got to be convincing, not just to people now, but for 2,000 years, across the whole span of the world. It's really an astonishing thing to have pulled off as a literary feat. And that four people did it was amazing. And what do those four people have in common? The one they were all writing about. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's water. Might I be a dry tree no longer? What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Must have taken Philip by surprise. And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. You know, pastors often at the peak moment say too much. Maybe Philip needed to go then. And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. And the Christians of Ethiopia to this day read this story and say, this is where we came from, a eunuch. He biologically fathered none of us, but he was our father. He got into that water 
no longer a dry tree. He wasn't didn't shy or withdraw. He looked at it. How much did he understand about union with Christ in his death and union with Christ in his resurrection? We don't know. How much could Philip get in and explain? We have no idea. But that beginning, that root took hold and has endured to this day. As a church, we face another set of challenges. The answers we use no longer work when we talk to people. Sometimes people are like, Pastor, just give him the answer. There's a little set group of words often that sort of used to work, it doesn't seem to work anymore. You find this in church history. The specific language the church uses to explain the gospel to people changes over time, even though the gospel itself stays the same. The story is the same, but the framing and the philosophy and the culture. Our institutions sometimes seem to hold us back as much as they help us, and we don't know if we feel equipped to meet the challenges. We have a world of people cut off from an imagined future. Anxieties about, well, many of us grew up anxious about nuclear war. Now it's environmental catastrophe or artificial intelligence. It's going to destroy us and undermine us in ways we can't even imagine. Skeptical whether the wrongdoings of their youth done by them or to them can be healed. Most of us aren't as impacted by the great anxieties as the fact that mom and dad couldn't keep things together and the series of new boyfriends and girlfriends certainly didn't bring order to the home. Wondering if they have a productive future or if they will be trapped by dissipation in distraction or purposelessness. G.K. Chesterton at the beginning of the 20th century wrote, I have said that Asia and the ancient world had an air of being too old to die. Christendom has had the very opposite fate. Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. The Son of God takes on flesh and comes into the world not like Apollo descending on a chariot, a Roman God gleaming with success and power, but a humble Jewish baby boy vulnerable to all the things we are. He descended to the lowest place and suffered humiliation. He was cut off in his youth. God raised him to the highest place and he offered redeeming friendship even to the lowest. Over the long term, the cruelty of castration and enslavement would be undone, and they can partake in his sufferings and his exaltation. The Ethiopian eunuch could only get as far as the court of the Gentiles, but Jesus loved that court. The gospel writers said, Zeal for his house will consume him, quoted that psalm. And when they saw Jesus clearing the money changers, saying, this is to be a house of prayer for all nations. 
It was enough to draw that seeking eunuch in. He had to know he could only get so far. The one, on the way home, the Spirit called in Philip, a Hellenistic Jew, for the conversation. And something got started. Is there such a time and such a thing that can function that way for us? Will we have the sort of qualities that can attract the cut off, the suffering, and the successful? Will we be used by the Spirit to enter into the conversation? Will we be ready for those conversations? Will we be able to witness to the new life in a way that is intelligible and desirable? You kind of have an Ethiopian eunuch here. <laughs> he, he, he's kind of pale, and he's had three daughters. But I hope you get a chance to see the speech he gave at the conference because I know it moved some to tears hearing about his story. Because the story was he was here working in the dairy industry and his life had fallen apart and a group of people came around him. And even though he'd been a Christian Reformed minister for a while, he had a lot of theological questions, still does, had a lot of thoughts, had a lot of anxiety, and a group of people in this church came around him and loved him. And although he's got questions, although, you know, he, he has crazy ideas and crazy things he does, this is his church. This is his spiritual home. And you are his people. I know this church can do it. It's done it before. Who are the people around you who need you? How can we figure out how to love them well? Let's pray. Lord, you made this world vast, and it is full of people in all sorts of circumstances. And Lord, we believe that you love us, that you love them, and you call us to love them like you do. We pray, Lord, that you will hear our prayer. We ask, Lord, that you will use us. We know, Lord, that the world is complex, and we don't always know how things should go. But may we be your tool, and may we be your witness. Hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.